So this is a great week, isn't it? I mean, we, we have um, Palm Sunday where Jesus makes his way into uh, Jerusalem. Um, he knows that he's going to be crucified on this day, on Friday. And, and yet we read in the scriptures that he set his face like a flint and went to Jerusalem. He didn't back down. He was not a coward. He was not afraid to follow the Father, even when it was going to be a very difficult thing. And he goes to the cross, and he suffers, and he dies. And then on that third day, Resurrection Sunday, he rises from the dead. And so this is, I mean, this is like one of the most important weeks of the year um, for us. And I pray that you've had a great week fellowshipping with the Lord and being reminded of your faith and just all that the Lord has done for you. I want to take some time to zero in, of course, on what Jesus did on the cross for us. We're going to begin in Matthew 27. We're going to read verses 15 through 56. It gives us one of the accounts that took place on that day that Jesus was taken and crucified. The title of the study is to keep yourself in God's love. Matthew 27, verse 15, down to verse 56. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ or the Messiah? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. <clears throat> and all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. 
Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And those who passed by were wagging their heads and saying to him, You destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Isn't it interesting that even in this mockery, they admit that he saved others. They they couldn't deny that. He had raised people from the dead. He had delivered people from uh, evil spirits. And they're like, he saved others, but what can he do for himself? What an indictment, even in their mockery. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's son. So we have this account. You can read of Jesus going to the cross in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is why he came, is to give his life a ransom for many. He came to redeem. This day um, that Jesus went to the cross, it's a very difficult day to try and figure out if you don't understand why he went there. Why would a good man like Jesus, who healed the blind, who fed the poor, who raised the dead and did all that he did, why would he be crucified? Why would they want him to die? We read a little bit here. They had envy. That was one of the issues. But that was really, that was an outlying issue. That was not the central issue. The issue is there's a problem of sin. 
One can't make sense of Jesus on the cross and the Father pouring out his wrath, as we'll read in just a moment in, in Isaiah, unless you understand that Jesus was on the cross because of our sin. He was redeeming mankind. He was suffering there for us. In the garden, you will remember, the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And indeed, Jesus, like an olive, was being vexed and pressed beyond measure. We read in the scriptures that it says that he was vexed unto what? Death. I mean, this was such a heavy moment right before he was arrested and going through the trials. He prayed to the Father that he would remove this cup of suffering if there was any other way to redeem mankind. But Jesus went to the cross. There was no other way because sin is so deadly, somebody had to die for it. It had to be punished and it had to be punished by God. The father had to judge that sin in order that he might be the just one. And so he went to the cross. You know, what is sin? Some would say, well, sin is something that, you know, a bunch of religious people made up to have sway over the masses and hold them in guilt so that they can manipulate them and do whatever they want with them. No, that's not it. Sin is a real behavior. It is a, whether it is an intentional or an unintentional disobedience against a holy God, not living the way we've been called to live. And that is why Jesus went to the cross is because of sin. And you can get a sense of what sin is in many places in Scripture. But let me give you one place. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, writing to the church at Corinth. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's why Jesus went to the cross. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. If you, the sin has this devastating impact. Now, he will later tell them, now such were some of you, but you were, you were redeemed and you were forgiven. Sin is a universal problem. It affects every person, every race, every background, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, many in our day believe that sin is only determined by an individual. That whatever a person thinks and believes is sin, to them, that's what is sin. Of course, they're fine with that philosophy until they find somebody else who thinks what they call righteousness is a sin. And then they have no tolerance for that. But th that's not what sin is. It's not just some free-willing decision that an individual makes. God has told us what sin is. And it's when we are walk in disobedience to him. Whether it's those things we should be doing or those things that we should not be doing. When we engage on this level and all have, then this is what sin is. God's explicit in scripture. If we say that sin does not exist, then why did Jesus come to the earth? And why did he die upon the cross? And why when he prayed to the Father that he would not have to die upon the cross, did a loving Heavenly Father still send him to the cross? And why do we read in Isaiah that God poured out his wrath upon his Son? If we don't understand the problem of sin, then we don't understand this day. 
And we don't understand the life of Jesus. Sin has a very real impact upon our lives. Isaiah 59.2, it tells us that it has separated us from God. That sin separates us from the Lord. It breaks that relationship. In Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death. So it has an impact upon our life. And then in Jeremiah 5, verse 25, we read that it keeps blessings and goodness from our life. We read in Jeremiah, it says, Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Indulging in sin and calling it righteousness does not bless you. It ruins you. It keeps you from the blessing that God wants to bring into your life, first and foremost, which is a relationship with him. So this is what sin is. This is the problem that Jesus came to solve. And Jesus is the one who saves us from sin. I've referred to it a couple of times already, but let me now just read it to you, a portion of it at least. Isaiah 53, written by the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And he spoke of what the Messiah, the suffering servant, would go through. Let's read. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are all healed. So, listen. This is something that impacts our life. Jesus died because of our sin, that he might give us freedom and cleanse us and be able to ultimately bring healing to, to us when we come into the next life. This is what the Lord has done. He has come. He endured that so we could have freedom. Now, here's what I know is the reality for most of us. Most of us in here have put our faith and trust in Jesus, and we did it a long time ago. And now you're walking with the Lord. But you know what happens? We can, maybe you've walked with the Lord so long that you've even forgotten what it's like to be unforgiven. Now, in one sense, that's kind of nice, isn't it? That it's so far in the past. But I think it's important for us to remember, as it says here, that we were the ones that would have been smitten by God. We are the ones that would have had his wrath poured out on us, but Jesus came and he did that for us. Jesus suffered the punishment of God for our sin. And in doing that, he makes us accepted to God. Let me read 1 Peter 3.18. says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just, Jesus, for the unjust, that would be me, and that would be you. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. You may even have this thought, well, I know I'm a sinner. As a matter of fact, I know I am such a terrible sinner that there is no way that I could ever be made right with God. Because my, my sin is too offensive, and it is too deep, and it has gone on for too long. Well, listen, Jesus died for all sin when he was on the cross, not just some sin. He didn't just 
die for, you know, the dirty white lie. You know, he died for the, the filthy, wicked thing that nobody wants to name. He died for it all. And all of it was transferred onto him. It was those innocent things that we, we will uh, kind of wink and nod at. And society will not be, you know, upset about. He died for those. But he also died for every filthy, wicked, despicable thing that's ever been done. It was laid on him. And then the Lord laid his judgment on him. Why? That sin might be dealt with. The punishment for sin could be solved. And now we could have a place with the Lord. So he saves us from sin. And so this day, the cross that we read about, that Jesus went to, the cross is love. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did the Father not provide him escape? Because of the Father and the Son's love for you and for me. He did it because of love. Listen to the words of Jesus. Greater love has no one, it's John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And what did Jesus go on to do? Lay down his life for his friends. Who's his friends? You're his friends if you allow him to be your friend. If you allow him, he will forgive you and cleanse you. But you've got to receive that gift. He's not going to get you and drag you into heaven. He's waiting for people to respond to him. That's why we have this invitation to come to him. To receive this work of salvation. You know, today there are those, there's a, a, a heresy that is out there. And it goes under different names. Deconstructionism and other names. You know what they're, part of what they, they say, they say this, is that they have a hard time believing that a loving Heavenly Father would actually punish His Son for the sin of other people. And so they say that this message of the gospel that is so well attested in all of the scriptures, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, they say that's not true. And that that's, it doesn't matter. And that sin doesn't matter. And that God would never do something like that to his son. But that's what the Bible teaches us. And that's what the scripture says. That's what Jesus said. He said he would lay down his life because he loves us. But they find this offensive. I think it is one of the most blasphemous heresies out there. Is to take the love of God as stated in scripture that he loves us and he sent his son for us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. To hear that and to say, not true. What an offense to God. The father and all that he went through in pouring out his wrath on the son. Or to the son who endured so much and said, I've done this because of love. And to have those that will stand by and say, it's all not true. None of this is true. God would never judge his son. God would never judge anybody. I wonder, and I'm sure there are many reasons, but if it isn't a way to excuse the way in which they're living their own sin that they're committed to. Because if I can say that there is no sin, and if I can dismiss, but see, if you say there's no sin, and you're informed by the scriptures, you have a dilemma. And the dilemma is that Jesus died on the cross. So how do you work your way around that one? Well, you say it's not true. It didn't happen. You just write it off. You, you blast it out the door. But that's what the scriptures say. 
And many of them will go on to say, well, we still believe Jesus is a good man. Oh, you believe in Jesus? And where do you get the idea that Jesus even existed from? The scriptures you say that are not true? So here it is. We are hearing from Jesus himself. We hear from the Lord saying that God the Father sent him to this world because of love. That's what this day reminds us of, is that God loves us. The last point before we take communion is that we are to keep ourselves in this love. Keep yourself in God's love. Don't allow heresies like we see going on lead you astray. And you know, I'm referring to a verse in the book of Jude. It's verse 21, only one chapter. And he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Interestingly, he says that in the midst of all the false teaching that was ripping through their congregation, through that group of people. All those that were turning the gospel into some lewd uh, way to, to live your life, and it doesn't matter. And it, it was, they were, the false teachers were saying, you live however you want to. Not so different than what we're hearing today. But we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. The, this word keep, um, it is written in a, a Greek tense that speaks of something that is a, a once, it's an aorist tense, it happens once. In other words, you're to keep yourself, and it should be a lifelong keeping. You should, you should plant yourself under the love of God, and you should never move from that place. But it's also an aorist imperative, and the imperative speaks of urgency. And so when they were having all of this swirling around them in, in the book of Jude, and people saying, live however you want to, it doesn't matter, he gives the exhortation is that you need to place yourself in the love of God, and you need to do it right now. There, you must do this and never move from that spot. And it, it is when we move from that place of abiding and keeping ourselves with the Lord that we move outside of this sphere. You could actually read it to keep yourself in the sphere of God's love. You gotta, you gotta be in that place where you can experience the fullness of God. We don't have to wonder too long what that means because Jesus made it pretty clear in John 15, verses nine and 10. He says, as the Father loved me. Well, ponder that for a second. What was the Father's love like? Despite what people are saying today that there's no way a loving Heavenly Father could send His Son on a mission to redeem mankind like this, Jesus seemed to be pretty well settled in the Father's love for Him. As the Father loved me, I also loved you. What? What a comparison to make. And I don't know how you've conceived God's love for you, as maybe it's just a little bit of kindness, maybe it's a leaning. He leans towards you with a gesture of kindness, but he describes the intensity and the scope of his love. He says, my love for you is like the Father's love for me. That's for you. Tonight and tomorrow and for the rest of eternity. He says, abide in my love. Remain there. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How interesting that he again uses himself as an illustration. He says, I've abided in the Father's love and I keep his commandments. And the exhortation to us is to abide in Christ and keep his commandments and thereby keeping ourselves in the love of God. It's when we drift from the love of God and obeying, excuse me, it's when we drift from abiding and um, obeying him that the love of God begins to be questioned in our hearts and our lives. Make no mistake about it. When you begin to wander out there into sin and you begin to dabble with sin, it will attack this wonderful, amazing truth that God loves you. And you don't have to take my word for it. I think probably most of you have lived with Jesus long enough to do a little test in your own life. Look back on it. And how when you did this, how your love and your passion for the Lord and the things that are important to the Lord begin to wane and they begin to fade. And so Jesus makes it very clear for us on how to interpret the exhortation there in Jude. Keep obeying the Lord, which totally changes the commandments of God. I'm not changing it. It changes how we should view the commandments of God. It doesn't change the commandments. It changes the way we should view them. So rather than as something we're doing to try and earn a special place in standing with Jesus, because Jesus didn't keep commandments to earn a special standing with the Father, did he? He was already that. He was already the Son. He was already loved. You are already loved. But we do that so that we can be in that place, be in this sphere where God's love can impact us. And the context, again, of the book of Jude is, so you do not fall away. You want to make certain? I want to make certain I never fall away. And the way to do that is to remain in that place of obeying the commandments of the Lord. Listen, John said this, that the commandments of God are not burdensome. The second a commandment of God begins to feel burdensome to you, it's a time to stop and evaluate what's going on. Lord, Lord, my heart is not pleased to obey you right now. I mean, this is throw on the spiritual emergency break and, and, and to lay yourself before the Lord and say, something's gone wrong. My heart is growing cold. Oh, Lord, work in my heart and to, and to come to him. And ask him to stir up that passion. Like we read it, even in Psalm 119. I mean, the, the, the psalmist of Psalm 119, he was so in love with the Lord. He says, it is good that I've been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. I mean, he even thought, if I got to go through difficulty, that it might teach me to obey, then that's a good thing. Obeying the word of God was not seen as a troublesome thing. Newsflash. He wrote under the law. We are commanded under grace to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments. So important. Well, there in Jude 21, he says, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You know, there is a close connection between being in the sphere, keeping yourself in the love of God, and having an eager expectation of eternity with Jesus. They're linked together. Because if you love Jesus, you want to be with him. And everything that he's promised about his return and his coming is something that will draw your heart in. So how do you keep yourself in the love of God? Well, Jesus makes an inextricable link between God's love and keeping his commandments. 
So walk out the commandments of the Lord. I mean, even the littlest of things that you can do, you're going to have a moment as a believer to share in communion. It's a commandment that he gave. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Make a deal. Lord, I'm obeying you because I love you. And stir up this passion in your heart and your life so that you could not ever move away from that place of God's love. So this is how we respond as a believer to God's love. We keep ourselves in it. We, we position ourselves in that place once and for all with great urgency that I'm going to be and remain in the sphere of God's love. And you do that by keeping the commandments. I mean, you, I'm sure you're thinking of the verse that Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Interesting how it is you cannot separate these two things. And whenever we separate Obeying the commandments of God from our love for Jesus, now we're walking out religion. Now we're walking in some kind of code of ethics rather than a life in relationship with the one who died for us in love. I do this because he loves me. I forgive that man. I forgive that woman. I, I say no. I, I turn my eyes away. I give. I, I give of my time, my resources, and answer the call of God upon my life because he loves me and I want to remain in that place of love. That's how we respond as a believer. But if you're a person that's never come to Christ, well, Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us how you should respond. It's how all of us who believe in Jesus have responded. All of us who are believers can think back to this moment when we did exactly what these verses say. And we look back on that with great fondness and great celebration. It's when we came to experience the reality of what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago. How do you enter into this love? Well, here you go. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. With the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But did you notice that it's your confession. With your mouth. Not mama's mouth. Not granddaddy's mouth who was a preacher. It's your mouth. It's your heart. You've got to do that. And you're like, yeah, I know that. But if you haven't done it, then you haven't done it. And you're outside of this love. And the exhortation is to keep yourself, get into that sphere of God's love. And you come by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, that he, is, he has a right to rule over your life. He's master. You believe that he was raised from the dead because, he, of course, he first died on the cross for my sins. And in doing that, the promise is you will be saved. Not maybe. Not a good chance. Not likely you will be saved. It's a definitive, it's an emphatic statement that when you do these things, you get to be a part of those who are redeemed. And I hope that if you have not done that, you will do that before you walk out of here tonight. What in the world could you possibly want to forfeit? It's, you know, it's so important that you would forfeit this love, this eternal presence with God. There's no sin that even comes close in its ability to dole out pleasure because you're going to be in eternity with Jesus. And nothing will compare to that. You know, you can have a great 
innocent, wonderful moment that you thank the Lord for. But even in those moments that were so great, you can say, yeah, it was really, really great. Loved it all. Loved it. I mean, is there anything you would change? Well, yeah, I mean, the gnats were terrible. But we had, it was a beautiful spot, you know. Or it was great, but it rained on us a little bit. Or it was this, but, you know, some people were noisy over here. But we still loved it. It's really hard to find something in this life that is completely and totally perfect. But when you get to heaven, it is going to be so completely and totally perfect. Something that we have never fully experienced in this life to be in the presence of the Lord. And it will be so complete, you cannot even long for anything to be different. And it will be like that from that day, your first day, throughout all of eternity. What sin out there is going to even come close? And you know the answer. What has it given you so far? What has it done for you so far? Here you sit. Is there need in your life? Is there emptiness in your life? And do you think this is something that can sustain you for the rest of your life like that? Or do you know that it's only going to be for so long? So confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to share in communion. The elements of the bread and the cup are going to go around. And as you get those, I want you to hold on to those. These are for these that have made a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. We're going to pray right now. And if you've not made that confession, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. And if you're a believer, then deal with the matters in your heart that need to be dealt with. And maybe it's simply this. Man, my heart needs to be refreshed and softened in the love of God for me. It just feels too academic. It feels too back of the bulletin. It's not really touching my heart. Well, it is a Holy Spirit that sheds abroad, that pours out his love, the Father's love on your heart. Ask him for a fresh touch. Father, we thank you that you love us. And Lord, we know you love your son. He said so. And that you sent him to redeem us. And we just want to say thank you, Lord. Thank you for this love. It is so good. It is so perfect, Lord. Keep us in your love. If you need to pray to receive Christ, then just quietly where you sit, acknowledge that you are a sinner and your sin needs to be forgiven. And ask Jesus to be your Lord, your master, the ruler, the one who calls the shots in your life. Yield to him, bow the knee to him, and ask him to sit upon the throne of your life. And you will be saved. If you're a believer who's been wondering and questioning the love of God, look at the cross. Think of the nails. Think of the thorns. Think of the spear and the mockery. He did it. He said because there is no greater love for you, his friend. No reason to question.